on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. We're coming at you with another accredited episode. Yes. And I actually counted last night, and I'm pretty sure I counted correctly. And this, I believe, is the 40th accredited episode that we've 40. done. 40. Wow. Yeah. We do a couple a month. Mm-hmm. That's, it was May of 2021. Which oh, wow. Was about a year longer than I thought we'd be doing this. Oh, this is the two-year mark. Yeah, you mean a year longer than you thought they'd let us do it? Well, well, no, I'm just saying, like when I like was thinking retrospectively. Oh, I'm oh, like, you oh it, we've been doing it for like a year. For like I guess. A year. Yeah, okay. I didn't realize it's been two years. Yeah, but it's amazing that they let us do it. For two I years. can't believe it. <laughs> so, so probably not listening anymore. <laughs> yeah. So big thanks to our friends just over joke. at FreeCE.com. Um, so yes, we have officially. We're going to say approximately, because <laughs> I, I could have missed one if I, w- I was counting quickly, but uh, around 40 episodes of accredited topics that and you can almost, get uh, credit for. Almost right on two years. Yep. And a lot of those, they'll stay up there for a couple of years. Yeah, so I think... I, I guess they're probably close to coming off. just off. now, I think some of our earliest ones are going to start falling off here pretty soon. Gotcha. So... So we can... We can <laughs> redo, redo them. those topics. <laughs> That's how we do it. Just kidding. Only we, if there's important updates. Yeah. And, oh, fingers crossed, because we are <laughs> steadily running out of topics to talk about no but uh thank you so much to our friends at freece.com so for those of you who are already members of freece.com and have unlimited memberships or the the gold or platinum memberships as they call it now um, you already have access to all of our accredited episodes as part of your membership and if you are not already a member definitely check out you know their library of of lectures and monographs and um, all kinds of great information and learning opportunities they have on their website and uh definitely encourage you to check check their their full um library on their website so uh thanks to them and at some point during the hour we will be giving you a secret super secret code uh, that you'll use in the post activity test that will be on free ce's website and so you'll you'll go to the website go to learn click on podcast select this episode and you'll use the password that we will give you at some point and you will have a 10 question multiple choice po- post activity uh exam to do yes after you get that you'll get your one hour of ce credit uh, for pharmacists and nurses and uh Today, we are going to be discussing osteoporosis. We are. You know, we came up with the password before the episode. It would be fun if we did it live sometime. Like, you know, just decided midway. Instead of doing the scramble, scramble, we'll just come up with it midway through. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I feel like that's going to go poorly. Because we're going to be talking about like... we spend a good five minutes We'll talk about three different passwords and they'll forget which one it actually is. And I'll have to go back and listen to them because by the time it gets published, it'll be a week later. you'll forget which password it is. Oh, yeah, for sure. But yeah, we're talking about osteoporosis today um, uh, in uh, women and men, but adults primarily is what we're going to focus on. Some relatively new guidelines. There are some new guidelines. There's definitely some new drugs in the last three, four-ish years um, that might be relatively updated for you for for those who learned this primarily in pharmacy school. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's a lot of background information to osteoporosis. In some ways, it's simple. In other ways, there's kind of a number of guidelines that aren't necessarily conflicting, but they just have subtleties and uh, and differences in how they um, want you to screen and that sort of thing. So we'll try to lay that out for you and be as clear as possible. Um, The drugs are reasonably straightforward, but there is a lot of um, nuance to them as far as maybe which ones would be preferred over others and which ones to use in different situations. But we'll try to talk through the pathophysiology as best we can, um, and as well as the mechanisms behind those drugs as well. 
So osteoporosis, um, what is it exactly? By basic definition, it's, it's a bone disorder that is characterized by low bone density, impaired bone architecture, and compromised bone strength that predisposes a patient to increased fracture risk. Um, estimated that 10.2 million Americans are estimated to have osteoporosis, and an additional 43.4 million Americans are estimated to have a low bone density and are at risk for developing osteoporosis. So it's considered to be, you know, a underdiagnosed, undertreated disease state that's obviously very prevalent. Right. And um, so it's the bone loss, and, and we'll talk through it, but there's also a significant amount of bone remodeling that occurs in it's hard to kind of grasp unless you see some pictures of it. I encourage you to look it up. Um, but but as far as how it's intercalated and intertwined and over time, how that can change, and you, it makes sense why the um, why the bones become more brittle. And why do we care? Because we don't want people to break their bones, obviously, and especially when you're elderly, um, a broken bone you know, it can be significant and very difficult to recover from. Um, especially if you have underlying brittle bones. Uh, but it can also have very poor prognosis depending on when it happens or where it happens um, for for um, life expectancy after that. So there are a number of um, factors that contribute to uh, whether or not you're going to be more predisposed to having osteoporosis uh, when, as you age. Um, genetics plays a role. Diet and lifestyle is significant. Um, your hormonal status is a big deal, and we'll talk through that other comorbidities and other medications, um, along with the general aging process leads to um, bone loss. Um, there are skeletal factors that lead to impaired bone quality, like I mentioned. Um, or you might have suboptimal peak bone mass. You might not have achieved the peak bone mass that would have been ideal, um, and which leads to skeletal factors that decrease bone density. Um, there's other non-skeletal factors that can, like an increase in fall risk that can lead to a fracture. Um, all of this leads to reduced bone strength and then low trauma or effectively non-trauma fractures, a fracture that occurs not because you fell um, or because you were in a car accident, but just going about your daily life, you had a fracture. Yeah. Could you imagine that if you get into a car accident and you, regardless of age, you break a bone, they're like, you got to be on a bisphosphonate. Have you ever broken a bone? No. It, you know, it's a funny, like, it's like a common question. Like if you're, Watching, not that I watch dating shows. You but do, okay? Let's they, be honest. They you do, watch a lot. They do of pop up on my TV uh -huh. on occasion. Okay? Uh huh. Um, and like first, it's like a first first date question. Did yeah. you ever ask Jen that when y'all were dating? Uh, I don't remember like outright asking her, but I, I mean, I, I actually do. think it came up. I'm pretty like as I was watching that, I'm like, I bet you some one of us asked each other if we'd ever broken a bone and talked about. Yeah, it. I do. I do know the bones that she has broken, but I don't. I can't remember when that was I know discussed. of Anna's bones that were broken prior to meeting me. So obviously I've asked that question. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like me too, because yeah. I've never been. I my, bet I, it was during the dating process. Probably. probably. I, that was a long time ago. <laughs> but you have not, even though you were an MMA fighter? <laughs> so uh, I've broken my nose and stuff like that, obviously, and like toes and little things, but I've never broken like a, a larger bone. I've never had a diagnosed broken bone. I thought I broke my toe one time and strapped to the other one for a few weeks. It was okay. But um, I have not. It's good. Yeah. My wife broke her pinky. We should knock on wood and make sure that we keep that, you know, well, as trend alive. As we'll go through, we'll see that peak bone mass is in your third decade of life. Here we are. Does that mean your 20s or your 30s? I believe 30s, right? Decade? Well, well I know, but your first decade would be 0 to 10. Your second mm, decade would be 10 to 20, point. and your third would be 20 to 30. That's a good point. It's kind of like the century thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I think we're past it. Crap. Dang it. 
Well, I guess testosterone, we're on the decline. testosterone level does start to, I guess, you know, yeah, in theory anyway, yeah. decline, which can lead to some of that. But I yeah. don't know. It applies to females, too, as yeah. far as that time frame. Let's go get a deck scan. <laughs> Might as well. But uh, Why not? Yeah. So, obviously, uh, Cole already has gone through some of the risk factors for developing osteoporosis. But um, females are going to be more at risk just generally. Um, their age, like he said, plays a role. And then there's some other, uh, things that we kind of keep an eye out for too, that can indicate risk of a patient developing osteoporosis. So patients, uh, who have family members and specifically like first degree relatives, um, in, in specifically, they mentioned the risk is even higher if the, if there was a parental, um, hip fracture, uh, in the patient's family history, but an osteoporotic uh, fracture in first degree relatives is a risk. Low body weight or body mass index, um, can be a risk factor. Um, premature menopause, so basically before the age of 45. Um, secondary osteoporosis and uh, rheumatoid arthritis is another one. Uh, cigarette smoking, uh, past or present um, oral glucocorticoid therapy, um, alcohol intake of three or more drinks per day, low physical activity or immobilization, and then obviously low calcium, low vitamin D intake or deficiency can lead to development of that as well yeah um there's also comorbidities that can play a role we referenced a couple of them a minute ago and there's a whole host of them but i'll try to kind of list what's most important but endocrine and hormonal changes um definitely play a role mike mentioned testosterone deficiency not nearly as significant to being postmenopausal, but um can definitely play a role as well hyperthyroidism um primary hyperparathyroidism um, and we'll kind of talk through that and that mechanism um, nutritional disorders, malabsorptive states, vitamin D deficiency, um, inflammatory disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, chronic kidney disease, um, also different cancers, uh, multiple sclerosis, diabetes. There's a host of them. Yeah. I think those are probably the, the main ones though. Yeah. And, uh, medications is another potential, I guess, risk factor because there are certain medications that can increase, um, bone loss or fracture risk. So just to kind of go through a few of these, some of our anti-epileptic medications, uh, for example, phenytoin, carbamazepine, phenobarb, um, divalprox, the the thought is that they can all lead to decreased bone mineral density um, and increased fracture, fracture risk because of a increase in vitamin D metabolism that eventually leads to low 25-hydroxy vitamin D concentrations in, throughout the body. Um, some antiretrovirals have been known to cause that, including um, tenofovir disoprosyl fumarate, the old form of tenofovir. Um, tenofovir alafenamide obviously being a little bit less likely, but that was kind of one of the big reasons why that other prodrug was developed. Um, aromatase inhibitors and uh, things like calcirrhinin inhibitors can also lead to this as well. Ferrosamide, um, because of the increased um, calcium renal elimination. Uh, glucocorticoids, we've talked about that probably to exhaustion on here. Um, patients who are using um, medroxyprogesterone depot uh, that it's being administered every 90 days or, or every, you know, 84 days, I should say, um, that also over time will increase the risk. Proton pump inhibitors long-term especially. Um, and there's even some, you know, data with uh, SSRIs, um, things like SGLT2 inhibitors, um, pioglitazone, like the TZDs, uh, excessive supplementation with thyroid um, supplements and, you know, levothyroxine and whatnot, um, excessive vitamin A intake. There's so many things that can 
put a patient at risk and it's especially as pharmacists it's a good thing to go through their med list and see if there's anything that could be working against them so to speak yeah um so why does osteoporosis happen why do you why is the result of aging brittle bones um there are some secondary processes we might we may touch on as we go um but primarily for um, a normal uh, person with healthy bones there's a homeostasis of um, bone breakdown and then bone rebuilding. And they call this the remodeling process. Your bones are constantly going through a state of breakdown and then being rebuilt. And that's what kind of maintain part of what maintains their strength. Um, so as long as there's homeostasis there, you're fine. But over time, um, it kind of gets out of balance and it can get out of balance for various reasons. Um, but effectively, that process is primarily driven um, by two types of cells osteoblasts and osteoclasts. Osteoblasts are uh, come from a mesenchymal um, stem cell is their precursor cell, and osteoclasts come from a hematopoietic stem cell. But the osteoclasts are what break down the, um, the bone in the first process. They call that resorption. So as we go through some of the medications, we may refer to them as anti-resorptive agents. Um, so the osteoclasts break down the bone and kind of after that sequentially the osteoblasts come through and reform the bone they rebuild it um, and that continues on and um, I was looking at some stats earlier and I can't remember them now but a significant portion of your bones every year are completely remodeled broken down and then built back up I don't want to say it because I want to be wrong but it was something like 25 percent ish of your bone mass or something like that um, don't take that to the bank but I swear that's what I read is broken down. I like down. how you said it. I'm not, I don't want to say it because I might be wrong. And then proceeded and then, immediately to say it. As long as I take a two-second pause, it's Right. Okay. No, that's good. So I pause good, first. That's a good And I gave it a idea. caveat. But a significant portion of your bones is broken down and then rebuilt, and it's driven by um, those two cells. Now, there's much more to that process. There's different um, steps in that pathway that we can interject with with medication um, to... Here, um, I'll pull it up on the screen for those of you watching the video it. version. Oh, yeah, you, great. Um, do you want to you want to go through that? No, no, you go for it. I just want to pull it up. Okay. Well, I was yeah, I was just going through the overview. Um, as far as being um, kind of the nitty gritty detail, there's a number of inflammatory mediators that can play a role, like um, NF kappa B um, and various other things. But as far as the step pathway, it ends with um, the rank ligand, um, which when we talk about prolia, um, is going to come into play with blocking that and um, um, preventing the continuation of the step of resorption, so it's going to be an anti-resorptive agent. Um, there's other medications um, like a sclerostin inhibitor that we'll talk about, and sclerostin plays a role in that pathway. Parathyroid hormone plays a role in that pathway, so there's a host of things. Yeah. And uh, like we mentioned, estrogen and testosterone obviously play a, a role as well. Um, estrogen in general uh, in, you know, has a very positive effect on bone remodeling. Um, so and that affects males and females. And so as far as, you know, estrogen's, um, you know, kind of mechanism, it suppresses the proliferation um, as well as the differentiation of osteoclasts, and um, it increases osteoclast apoptosis. Um, estrogen also decreases the production of several cytokines. Um, they can be you know, potent stimulators of osteoclasts, so things like interleukin-1, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, um, those are all going to potentially, um, or when you inhibit those uh, and decrease the amount of those in, um, in systemic circulation, you're going to lead to increased osteoclast apoptosis. 
Um, testosterone also plays a role in bone health as well. Um, and it's even been identified now as, as having a direct effect on bone resorption and osteoblast activity. Um, most of testosterone's bone effects do sort of relate directly to the metabolism of estradiol and, you know, the, the estrogen bone effects that we just talked about. Um, but, uh, definitely, um, you know, estrogen, obviously the reason why females are, are more likely to develop, uh, osteoporosis because postmenopausal osteoporosis is probably the most common form. And, um, the estrogen deficiency leads to that bone mineral density loss and compromise of that bone architecture over time. And, uh, you know, it's in order to get that back, it's not as simple necessarily as just replenishing estrogen because we've, as we've talked in previous episodes, that can lead to a whole host of risk factors and whatnot. Yeah. And they, it used to be a treatment and they, um, it used to be a, a not uncommon treatment, but they looked into it and there's really a not great effect on prevention in fractures by doing um, hormone replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. It's still done, you know, obviously for other reasons related to, um, uh, being menopausal or postmenopausal, but um, it is not a recommended treatment for osteoporosis. Yeah, and estrogen deficiency doesn't always have to be a postmenopausal situation. It could be patients who you know are suffering from anorexia that, and that's the reason why their estrogen levels are deficient. Um, that can also lead to a, that would be obviously more of a, I guess, secondary cause. But it's essentially um, because of the low estrogen levels that are um, are seen. So it's it's not always. Um, menopausal or postmenopausal rather patients that are suffering from that and then um, when it comes to like male osteoporosis um, men are obviously going to be a lower risk of developing osteoporosis um, because one you know from a population standpoint larger bone size um, greater uh, peak bone mass um, increase in bone width with aging Um, fewer falls I guess you'd have to I, I, I'm, there must be stats around I, that. I was going to say, I want to see the stats on that one because yeah. I feel like guys have to fall more. I <laughs> um, feel like we're way more clumsy. But uh, And then shorter life expectancy. There you go. That's <laughs> That one I can agree with for sure. Um, but as you know, patient, male patients age, uh, sex hormone binding globulin is going to increase, which is going to result in less free testosterone that's available. And that's going to lead to less testosterone available that can be converted into estrogen. So, and, and estrogen is going to inhibit bone absorption in men. Uh, although androgen deficiency increases that rank ligand, like Cole was talking about, and, um, that release can increase, uh, bone absorption. So estrogen, testosterone, very important. Uh, there's another hormone that's important, um, parathyroid hormone. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the interplay between, parathyroid hormone, vitamin D, and calcium. Um, you probably have seen a flow chart related to this at some point. I'm sure it was in DePiro's book somewhere it's, it's, um, when you're going through pharmacology. But effectively, when you have a decrease in serum calcium, the body's going to respond by um, letting out some parathyroid hormone. Parathyroid hormone is going to increase osteoclast activity. We're just going to break down the bones to try to increase the serum calcium. So it's going to try to take the calcium that's stored in your bones. There's a number of reasons why we might have low calcium. Um, it could be because um, we have, you know, low dietary intake of calcium or we have a problem absorbing our dietary intake of calcium. Um, but it's important because when a patient has osteoporosis, we're going to do a workup to rule out a whole host of things. One of those is we're probably going to check their calcium um, to determine if we need to check their thyroid hormone because if their calcium is elevated or low, um, we probably need to 
check their thyroid hormone to see if that is elevated or low and um, or their parathyroid hormone to see if that's elevated or low to see if that's um, playing a role in what might be um, part of the cause. So they have might have secondary hyperparathyroidism, um, a lot of parathyroid hormone floating around, prompting a lot of osteoclast activity and a lot of excess bone breakdown. So what we might see in that instance is high calcium because there's bone breakdown that shouldn't be happening because we have too much parathyroid hormone floating around. Um, vitamin D also plays a role here. So vitamin D is going to assist with effectively the, um, the intestinal absorption of calcium. So if you have low vitamin D, it's possible that you might be intaking an appropriate amount of calcium, but you're not absorbing it in the intestines appropriately. It's not getting to the blood, which is going to prompt you to have low calcium, and it's going to um, cause the parathyroid hormone to be elevated. So again, you would see low calcium, um, high, parathy- high parathyroid hormone, and then bone loss due to that. So this is why as we go through, we'll talk about... Um, the importance of making sure the calcium and vitamin D are at appropriate levels, and if not, kind of checking that out, um, and then also uh, possible supplementation depending on what's going on. And I think we've discussed this too, but this is a big uh, discussion to have when you're talking about chronic care, um, or not chronic care, I'm sorry, uh, chronic uh, kidney, kidney disease, disease, because obviously if your kidneys are not functioning properly, the the way that your body activates vitamin D into its to its active form, calcitriol, is through one hydroxylation reaction in the liver and then the other in the kidney. And so if a patient's kidney function is low, the vitamin D drops. And then like Cole was saying, oftentimes in CKD that's more advanced, you'll see parathyroid hormones uh, levels rise, and you have to kind of balance that all back out again. And that's another thing that parathyroid hormone does. It doesn't just prompt increased osteoclast, increased reabsorption and osteoclast activity. It also increases reabsorption of calcium in the kidneys, and I think it also prompts um, additional vitamin D conversion in the kidneys. So if you have chronic kidney disease, then that piece isn't going to be as effective, mm-hmm. effective either. Yep. Yeah. So if you have a patient that, you know, we suspect have some bone mineral density losses and, you know, we're worried about them having a fracture. Maybe we haven't confirmed that they, in fact, have osteoporosis at this point, but we want to see, you know, what their 10-year probability of a fracture would be. You are in luck because we have a tool for that called the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool, the FRAX. Um, and uh, I'll show uh, on my screen here. Um, it's, it basically uh, looks at age, um, sex, weight, height, uh, whether or not they've had a previous fracture. Um, if there is a uh, parent's fractured hip on you know, the patient's family history, are they currently a smoker? Are they using glucocorticoids? And do they have rheumatoid arthritis? Um, they also assess whether the patient has um, secondary osteoporosis or in uh, alcohol um, consumption of three or more units per day. And um, that will give us a percentage. And if we have a, a T-score of the femoral neck bone mineral density, then that obviously can get um, inputted as well. But uh, that will give us a percentage of their chance of having a, a fracture and um, can help kind of steer us in the direction of treatment or maybe at least further evaluation. Yeah, and I believe, uh, I could be wrong, but I believe it delineates it uh, into a percentage risk of, is it vertebral fractures versus non-vertebral fractures, I'm pretty yeah. sure. And so, yeah, this is used um, as we go through some of the diagnostic criteria to assist with diagnosis. Um, as we go through, we'll, we'll talk about, you might have this T-score plus this FRAC score, or you might have osteopenia plus this FRAC score. And when you're deciding 
whether you need to treat or not. Um, yeah, I compare it to like the ASCBD calculator, which is, of course, your risk of having um, a ASCBD event over 10 years. This is very similar. It's like your risk of having possibly having a fracture yeah. over the next 10 years. It's very similar. And um, I mean, obviously, it's just a tool and it's not perfect, but they yeah. will use this to guide decision making. Yep. All right. So um, if you get to the point where, you know, you, you feel like the person needs to be screened, you know, and actually have their bone mineral density levels checked. Um, one of the most common tools that you'll see is the is the DEXA scan, um, dual energy X-ray absorptiometry. And uh, it's, you know, it's a part of the evaluation of bone mineral density loss and uh, part of the workup for osteoporosis as far as getting that diagnosis. Um, the, the DEXA is used to calculate the bone mineral density at the lumbar spine, the hip, and the proximal femur. Um, bone, de- bone density data from the DEXA is reported as either T-scores or in Z-scores. Uh, so the T-score is the value compared to that of control subjects who are at their peak bone mineral density. Um, the Z-score is going to reflect the value compared to that of patients matched for age, sex. And so you can kind of use both of those to sort of put the patient in a range of the whether or not their osteoporosis, osteopenia being not quite the, the threshold of osteoporosis, but definitely having, having bone mineral density loss. And uh, yeah, so the DEXA scan is definitely a good um, and kind of um, that's gold standard tool as far as evaluating patients for bone mineral density loss. Yeah. There are other imaging uh, op- options as well, but we won't go into all that. Um, and like we said, some of the uh, guidance for screening, treatment choice, um, not so much diagnosis, um, can differ slightly amongst guidelines. One guideline, which I believe is the this one's World Health Organization, recommends... Um, screening patients, women over 65 years and men over 70 years, regardless of any other clinical risk factor, making sure that they have a DEXA scan. Um, also, postmenopausal women um, and men above age 50 to 69, younger postmenopausal women um, and women in menopausal transition can be screened at this age group depending on their risk factor profile. And then postmenopausal women and men 50 and older um, who've had an adult age fracture. Um, to diagnose and determine the degree of osteoporosis. So um, if they've had a fracture and they're 50 and older, DEXA scan. Um, And then other patients who might be at high risk because of other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or because they're taking um, medications like glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids will be a refrain throughout because they're so high risk. Um, uh, For instance, this guideline considers high risk being a daily dose of um, 5 milligrams or more of prednisone or the equivalent for three months or more um, is associated with low bone mass or bone loss. Um, and you mentioned osteopenia. So if you're looking, this is World Health Organization, which I think is pretty universally accepted as far as um, the these T-score ranges. Um, I mean, somebody might disagree, but this is what I've seen every time I see these ranges. It's yeah. always the World Health Organization um, who's put this out. Um, you talked about what a T-score and a Z-score is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the um, a T score of minus one to um, minus two point five standard deviations would be osteopenia. T score less than two point five standard deviations would be osteoporosis. Um, T score less than two point five with a fragility fracture would be severe osteoporosis. I also saw it referenced um, a T score less than three would be considered severe osteoporosis. It's also important to note that 
it doesn't just come as like a blanket T-score. Um, it comes as a T-score at certain sites. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't remember all of them, but like the femoral neck or the vertebral vertebrae or something like that. Um, so it'll, it'll give you various T-scores at different sites, and you can assess risk based on the site. Um, you still give them a general diagnosis of osteoporosis, uh, but even as we go through some of the medications, you'll see that some of them have better data in certain types of um, fractures. Uh, so we might choose one over another because they're at high risk for this type of fracture. Um, strangely, osteoporosis, not something I would have thought of, but it is considered a, a silent disease because you don't have symptoms of osteoporosis until you've had a fracture. But I think what was surprising to me is that uh, like two-thirds of um, vertebral fractures go unnoticed. Like they don't have significant pain. Like you literally, that's breaking your back, right? If you break mm-hmm. a vertebrae, you're broken your back. Um, and so they can have pain, but generally they don't have like a lot of pain, but they might complain that their stature is shorter or they're kind of hunched over a little bit or, or something where their spine has obviously changed. But I figured if you break a vertebra, like you're going to the hospital. But it's a fracture. Um, Even a fracture of the hip um, is not necessarily immediately noticeable. There's some physical exam findings you can do to to figure out that that might be what it is before you do imaging. Um, But yeah, vertebral fractures are extremely common. I think like the most common. And then hip fractures are very common as well. Yeah, and in fact, the the National Osteoporosis Foundation guidelines, um, they... Say for postmenopausal women um, or in a man that's over the age of fifty, um, who have an elevated risk of fracture, and that they in, they have various kind of bullet points that they would you know have listed as far as what they would consider at risk for a fracture. The first one, obviously, being the the T score of negative uh, two point five or less, like Cole was talking about, and they they mentioned specifically at the spine or hip, um, and then they say if hip fracture with or without bone mineral density testing. So even just the hip fracture alone. It's clinical diagnosis. Yeah. Um, vertebral, um, that can be um, proximal humerus, pelvis, um, or in some cases, distal forearm fracture in the setting of low bone mass, so osteopenia, or a FRAX score with 10-year risk of hip fracture that's 3 or greater percent, or uh, for major osteoporotic fractures of 20% or more in a patient with osteopenia. So that's just FRAX score they could diagnose it just mm-hmm. based on that. And they did do a little bit of updating um, with the, the 2020 endocrinology guidelines. And uh, they do say that a T-score of less than 2.5 or below in the lumbar spine, femoral neck, total proximal femur or one-third radius, low trauma spine or hip fracture, regardless of um, bone mineral density, which is kind of the same. And then uh, T-score between negative 1 and negative 2.5 and a fragility fracture of proximal humerus pelvis or distal forearm would also count. And then a uh, score of negative one and or negative one to uh, negative two point five, um, and a high frax fracture probability based on country specific thresholds. And that's the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. Yeah. So yeah. So we've cited the World Health Organization, National um, Osteoporosis Foundation, and the American Association of Clinical yep. Endocrinologists. All are effectively saying the same thing, but they're just like slightly different. Yeah. Um, and like the World Health Organization doesn't even include the um, the uh, FRAX score, mm-hmm. from what I can tell. Yeah. So yeah, so this seems like a really good opportunity to give you guys the super secret password. Ah, wonderful. Which is, of course, Bones. B O N E S, all capital letters. 
There you go. Not Do not tell your friends. Not the TV show. Not the TV show. Yeah. What the heck? Was, isn't that like a Snoop Dogg movie or something too? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I, I remember it as like a whodunit crime TV show. I never really watched it, but it was always on like TNT. Just always. Yeah. TNT, they know drama. I think that's their motto, right? <laughs> that is. That is. Or maybe it was FX. But it was, it's always on something. Yeah, always. So, yeah. Where yeah. do you want to go from here? Do you have any other um, background stuff before we get into the drugs? I thought, oh, um, we should probably talk uh, before we get into some of the medications, which we might have come across this naturally, but um, some kind of lifestyle things that can be changed. We talk about risk factors, and some of that is obviously modifiable, but um, we didn't really talk about exercise, which is definitely important in the prevention of osteoporosis. It's also important to mention that once you have a diagnosis of osteoporosis, we, we don't have any drugs that um, have been shown to reverse that to get you back to where you were like pre-osteoporotic. But we, we definitely have data that we can prevent the diagnosis of osteoporosis or at least delay it significantly. Um, we'll talk about the meds, but exercise is important. Weight-bearing exercise, muscle-strengthening exercise is particularly important in this case. Um, you know, a little slightly different than how we're always talking about, you know, some cardio mixed with um, resistance exercise with um, strengthening the muscles around the bones, weight-bearing exercise and muscle strengthening is important, um, can improve agility, strength, posture, balance, and then reduce the risk of falls. So that would be a traumatic fracture, which we want to reduce the risk of. Um, ensuring appropriate calcium and vitamin D intake um, is important. Um, smoking is a big risk factor, so smoking cessation is important. Um, we talked a little bit about alcohol, but limiting alcohol consumption, um, especially for a patient who is maybe has osteopenia um, and are you know drinking more than the recommended amount of alcohol, recommending that is important. Um, and then as you age, fall risk factors. So there's a number of those around the house, right? Might be in the bathtub. Um, so installing a handle or um, uh, a seat, um, you might have a couple of stairs when you're walking out your front door. Maybe putting in a rail. Um, or putting a handle on the door frame or something like that that you can grab, um, uh, cane, walker, whatever it is, because um, a fall is going to be obviously high risk for a fracture. You can de- you can put wrestling mats throughout your entire yeah. house, yeah, just in case. It just looks like an insane asylum. It, do- <laughs> it doesn't look as good as hardwood floors, but <laughs> it it does the trick. That, that's what we we need to make is wrestling mats that have like a laminate. The laminate look. Yeah. It just looks like laminate. I think they have something like that. I've seen something that looks like wood before, but it's actual mats. Like foam or mats. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I think they use like those puzzle piece mats these have. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think that would sell very well. It doesn't seem very cost effective, but I guess if no. you need new floors. Um, so, yeah. Uh, as far as we'll get into some of the treatment and, mm-hmm. you know, management of, of osteoporosis. And uh, luckily, there's been some fairly new guidelines that were published um, by the American College of Physicians. And uh, we'll talk about some of the recommendations, and we'll also talk about some of the, I guess, discrepancies maybe that some people have posed uh, since they've been published. But they came out in, I believe, January of this year, 2023. And um, one of the first you know, recommendations they make for treatment is that they, they recommend clinicians use bisphosphonates for initial pharmacological treatment to reduce the risk of fractures and postmenopausal females diagnosed with primary osteoporosis. And they give that a strong recommendation with the high certainty of evidence. 
Um, the other recommendation that they make, and we'll go obviously spend some time going through these, but the other recommendation they say is that uh, the clinicians should use um, rank ligand inhibitors, specifically the um, denosinab or perlia, as a second-line pharmacological treatment to reduce the risk of fractures in postmenopausal females um, diagnosed with primary osteoporosis who have contraindications to or experience adverse effects with bisphosphonates. Um, they gave that a conditional recommendation and moderate certainty evidence. And then um, they also say that you could use uh, scholastrin inhibitors, uh, and specifically the ones available is the um, Ramos Suzab. Did I say that right? Romo. You nailed it. Romo Suzab. There you go. Idiot. Um, And uh, that is with moderate certainty evidence. Or you could use a recombinant parathyroid hormone like um, terapatide or... um, and then followed by bisphosphonate to reduce the risk of fractures only in females with primary osteoporosis with very high risk of fractures. And they give that a conditional recommendation. So let's start with bisphosphonates. Sure. You want to start with alendronate first? Yeah. So, so oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. I was just going to say that I never really, I, I thought all bisphosphonates were equal except for um, frequency of dosing or route of administration. Um, But there is some differing data between them as far as what type of fractures they work for. So um, just in general, alendronate, resedronate, um, the oral ones, and then zoledronic acid. um, Some experts would say that those are kind of the first ones that you would want to consider because of their data. Um, There's also ibandronate, um, but it does not have as strong a data um, related to, uh, I believe it is... um, non-vertebral fractures. So specifically, it's effective for vertebral fractures, not so much for non-vertebral. So alendronate is branded as Fosamax. Um, This is dosed as 70 milligrams once a week. Um, For all of the oral options, surely you've heard this before, but they have kind of a weird dosing recommendation, um, and that is to be sitting upright and take with a large glass of water at least 30 minutes before eating in the morning. it's important primarily for, well, for two things. One, for absorption. Um, so the oral bioavailability, or I should say the, the oral absorption of these is very bad. Even if you take it with black coffee or orange juice, um, it's shown to be, to be bad. So you can't take it with any food, just the glass of water. The glass of water is primarily to make sure it doesn't get stuck in the throat. Um, and then you want to sit up because um, it, can, it has a risk for like esophageal erosion. So if you have... Um, long-term history of GERD and developed Barrett's esophagus or something like that, this really wouldn't be a good option for you because of the um, concern there. Um, So the potential damage to the esophagus and then um, the um, oral absorption is why it has that strange recommendation. Um, But uh, there are trials that indicate that it reduces the rate of fracture at the spine, the hip, the wrist, by about 50% in patients with osteoporosis which I think is pretty good. Yeah, I didn't realize this, but there's a combination product um, of alendronate plus vitamin D3, um, and it's branded as Fosamax plus D. And I don't know that it's I've ever... It's a convenient name. <laughs> it really sums it up. <laughs> it is. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen that before, but it's there. Um, yeah, so um, there, there, there talks a little bit about uh, a study with 38,000 patients Um using um, proton pump inhibitors in conjunction with um, Fosamax that have a dose-dependent loss of protection against hip fracture. So there's also a concern for like an interaction with 
proton pump inhibitors too. But yeah, yeah. Um, and then so you, that's typically once a week uh, is with the alendronate is dosed at like Colsa. But the uh, um, resendronate is another one, the uh, actinel. And then there's also a delayed release form um, under the brand name Atelvia, which is a, a once monthly um, version. But uh, typically the the actinel is is once a week. Um, as well um, same kind of administration that you have to worry about with the lindronate so taking it on an empty stomach six to eight ounces of water and then staying upright for at least 30 minutes and then we have our our once uh, monthly option uh, boniva or abandronate that uh, has the same administration instructions but you have to stay up for 60 minutes um, with that one because it's longer acting obviously yeah um, in all of these bisphosphonates are anti-resorptive agents um, they act subtly differently like alendronate inhibits osteoclast activity and bone resorption it binds to calcium salts um, and blocks the transformation of calcium phosphate into hydroxy appetite and inhibits the formation aggregation and dissolution of hydroxy appetite crystals in the bone whereas resedronate is anti-resorptive but it doesn't affect bone mineralization in the same way so they're subtly different um um, ways that they do the same thing, um, but they're anti-resorptive. And then we're going to talk about some anabolic options that are going to help build bone as opposed to preventing bone from, from breaking down, which as you can imagine, when I talked about the, the homeostasis before you can see some improvement in bone mass by preventing um, resorption, because if we're having excessive resorption, but then we prevent it to go back to homeostasis or even have an excess in, um, bone building, then you can still see some, some bone mass. But the purpose of the um, anabolic agents is, is to build bone mass. So those are the three oral agents. There's also an intravenous agent, um, solidronic acid, which is branded as reclast. It's just a once yearly IV infusion. Um, and if you look at the data, appears to possibly be kind of the most effective, um, but there's concerns with it um, that might make it not necessarily just the first one you start with. Um, but many would consider it the most potent bisphosphonate. It increases bone mineral density at the spine by 4.3 to 5.1%, the hip by about 3.5%, and that's compared to placebo. Over three years, it reduces the incidence of spine fractures by 70%, hip fractures by 41%, and non-vertebral fractures by 25%. So when you're looking at some of the guidelines, generally they would say if you have an issue with um, oral administration, or if you have um, adherence issues, then this could be the option for you. Once yearly infusion, um, that's all you have to do it for. Uh, and you don't have to worry about once weekly or once monthly dosing or the whole non-eating thing. Obviously, it's going to be more expensive. Um, it's also important to note that with the bisphosphonates, um, there is a... Um, five-year treatment recommendation. Basically, they recommend limiting it to five years, and then after that, doing a drug holiday and reassessing the DEXA scans. And I believe there's some guidance as to if you need to restart a bisphosphonate. I'm pretty sure, um, I think what I saw was if you have a greater than 5% decrease in bone mineral density over two consecutive DEXA scans, then they would recommend restarting. Um, but they do have that five-year limit on the bisphosphonates. And, and one of the things the guidelines did mention is that they want that to be patient-specific as far yeah. as when and, you know, if to take a drug holiday and all that. True, yes. Kind of so there are definitely, if a patient is at high risk or especially if they had a fracture despite a bisphosphonate, 
then you would want to uh, treat longer, but you might've even switched meds if they had a fracture wall on a bisphosphonate, but we'll yeah. talk about that. And some, the reason why you needed the drug holiday, cause we haven't really talked about what, why the need for that. Right. I don't think. No. Oh, okay. So <laughs> make sure that I wasn't uh, zoning out while you were, <laughs> while you were going through something, but uh, there are, you know, some concerns as, you know, long-term and one of them uh, would be a, uh, the risk for like, um, osteonecrosis of the jaw being one, um, atypical, uh, femoral shaft fracture, um, is another and, um, severe musculoskeletal pain. Uh, there's even been case reports of, uh, GI perforation, um, and, you know, bleeding even, uh, in patients that are taking osteo, uh, or excuse me, in patients that are taking bisphosphonates long-term. And so, um, just kind of keeping, you know, the, the common side effects being dyspepsia, maybe some like transient uh, musculoskeletal pain. In some cases, it could be more chronic, but it's usually like a tolerable amount. And then um, some nausea and whatnot. But those rare effects, you know, especially like the, the jaw necrosis and whatnot is definitely something that we need to kind of have it on our radar and be aware that you know, it can happen. Yeah, I think it's good to, um, even though it's rare, to have patients just let their dentist know that they're taking it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They're going to have any dental work done or just as they're doing their routine cleanings, they could kind of keep an eye out and ask them if they're having any jaw pain or anything like that, um, just to get ahead of it if there is that concern. I meant to mention that with the IV um, reclassed, there's a, a concern for renal issues, um, mm -hmm. acute renal injury. Um, there's It also has this kind of... Um, I guess, infusion-related reaction, reaction or response that you can have. Um, and sometimes a few days afterwards, you can develop, like, cold and flu-type symptoms that last for a couple of weeks. But, yeah, but there's some concerns with it. And it's contraindicated if the creatinine clearance is less than 35 mils per minute. 35. So, yeah. 35. All right. So that's some some overviews of uh, bisphosphonates, and we'll talk about, um, you know, we'll go back to those in just a second. But you want to talk about the rank ligand inhibitor? Sure. Um, denosumab. So there's denosumab, which is branded as Prolia. Um, we talked about where rank ligand kind of plays um, a role in that cascade. So this is a once every six month injection. I believe it's 60 milligrams. Mm -hmm. um, once every six months. Um, it has to be administered by a healthcare professional. So um, even though it is just a regular syringe, sub-Q sub -Q syringe that um, a patient could definitely do themselves, it's part of the FDA labeling that it's done um, by a healthcare office. So usually um, it could be provided by the healthcare office as in a buy and bill situation where they just go in and have it done. Um, it can be mailed from a pharmacy to the office for them to hold and the patient to go in and do. Um, it can be um, picked up from a regular pharmacy by the patient and then brought in to the office to do. It can also be done at an infusion center. Um, where they order the med in a buy and bill situation and administer. So it all depends on what the clinic wants and what their staffing is like and, and kind of their process. But there's a whole host of, of um, options. And it's refrigerated, but um, it can't, it's stable at room temperature for 14 days. So if a patient needs to take it out of the fridge to take it with them to their appointment, they can do that. But it also, so this is anti-resorptive. It also has the concern for osteonecrosis of the jaw. Um, so you would want to give similar warnings about that. And I believe it also has a five-year um, kind of general limit for treatment. But depending on risk factors, patient-specific, you can't go longer than that. Um, yeah, I'll stop there because we'll touch on it with the 
you know, Balak ones. But. Yeah. Well, and it does it does carry a, a REMS program associated with it that um, because it, it it needs to be monitored, the patients need to be monitored for um, development of some, any kind of infection. It does have a risk for increasing uh, or increase the risk of developing a serious reaction as well as dermatological adverse reactions um, and suppression of bone turnover. Um, it's also contraindicated in pregnancy. So keeping that in mind. Yep. So the new guidelines sort of have um, Prolia as like their you know, recommended second line option, whether a patient can't tolerate or, or you know didn't find efficacy with bisphosphonates. Um, and so, you know, the we start with bisphosphonates, then they would say the second line option, Prolia. Uh, when the new guidelines were published, um, there was an editorial that was also published, um, and the the author. Um, is uh, Dr. Susan Ott, and she, basically the she titled it the decision to start a bisphosphonate is actually not that easy. Um, and so if you look go on Medscape, there's a, a really good kind of summary of of that. And she also discusses the systematic review that was published around the same time frame that looked at sort of like the uh, the various medications and compared their you know, treatment uh, efficacy. But um, you know the with that change in you know, or not not change, but with their their guidelines saying that they recommend Prolia as a second line option, um, I will say she she kind of wrote in her editorial that you know one the the whole idea of just everyone's getting a bisphosphonate isn't always that specific, and it depends on the severity and whatnot. And um, she also mentioned that uh, you know, for example, patients with serious osteoporosis uh, treatment should basically start with an anabolic medication, which we'll talk about in a second, um, because previous treatment with either a bisphosphonate or uh, denosinab could prevent the anabolic response of the newer medications. So that would be a, a, a problem, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, she made a, a point to, to to bring up, um, you know, the use of prolia, and said that uh, using that as a second line option isn't always the go to thing for a lot of clinicians either. Um, and uh, she's basically said that um, an immediate uh, update is necessary to address the severity of bone loss and the high risk of vertebral fractures after discontinuation of denosinab. And so they didn't really kind of expand on that. And then, uh, you know, she said, this is a quote, she said, I do not uh, agree with using denosinab for osteoporosis as a second line treatment. I would use it only in patients who have cancer or usually high bone resorption. Um, you have to get a dose strictly every six months. And if you uh, need to stop, it is recommended to treat with a bisphosphonate. Denosinab is a poor choice for someone who does not want to take a bisphosphonate. Many patients and even too many doctors do not realize how serious it can be to skippy dose yeah i'm actually meant to mention that so i i mentioned the five-year drug and then drug holiday I, that actually doesn't apply for prolia because there is a big increased risk for fractures after stopping it or missing a dose so generally if you look at the labeling it says anything outside of a month is kind of high risk so you want to try to get it within that month but you have to schedule an appointment with a provider or with a nursing staff blah 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 so sometimes that can be difficult and then if um, you're on it for a while, but then you want to come off of it, your risk is going to be increased for a fracture too. So it's either a lifelong thing, or when you come off, you need to take a bisphosphonate afterwards, or we're kind of just going back. Your risk is is significant. So it's kind of like, why did we even take that for three years or whatever it was? Um, so yeah, th that should be considered before starting it. I think that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. You want to jump into the uh, 
in a box. Yeah, and before that, I'll just mention briefly that there is a um, selective estrogen receptor modulator that's an option to raloxifene, branded as a Vista. Um, we won't expand too much on that, but it's it's used in cancer and um, and uh, can also be effective for osteoporosis, but carries a box warning for increased VTE risk um, and death from stroke. So the anabolic agents, we have two. Ter- and, uh, real quick, too, I will say that they, they did mention that even though the, the newest guidelines did not directly address those, that they're planning on an update that includes the estrogen and um, the serums and whatnot gotcha. as part of it in the next couple of years. Gotcha. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. So the two anabolic agents we have are um, teriparatide, branded as Forteo. There's also another generic brand called Bonsity. Um, it's effectively the same thing. And then... Um, I guess is it biosimilar? Um, it's, I don't think it's, it's, not te- technically it's not technically a bio- biosimilar, but they, they aren't interchangeable from mm-hmm. like a pharmacist standpoint. It has a slightly different volume in the pen, um, but it's it's still teriparatide. Okay. Um, and then there's a baloparatide, which is Timlos. Um, so these are recombinant human parathyroid ho- hormone. So it's effectively giving synthetic parathyroid hormone um, to act as an anabolic agent for treating osteoporosis. And the idea is for it to build up bone. Um, before treatment, you do want to get serum levels of calcium and parathyroid and vitamin D because you want to make sure that there's not a secondary issue going on um, before you, because you would need to manage that before you started one of these medications. Um, the Forteo, I believe, is 20 micrograms uh, once daily sub-Q. So these are a once daily injection, which is kind of inconvenient compared to the other options we've been talking about once weekly, once monthly, every six months, every year. So this is daily, which isn't ideal, um, but treatment is only recommended for two years. Um, and that's because of a risk of osteosarcoma um, outside of two years. And I think they had a box warning at one point. I had I didn't verify this today, but I had heard that that got removed. But regardless, there's a concern for osteosarcoma after two years. So generally, like Mike mentioned, you would use the anabolic agent for a couple of years, and then you would start an anti-resorptive agent after that. Um, where I see this used a lot is a patient who had a fracture despite being on a bisphosphonate or has already just had a non-impact um, fragility fracture. Um, and so they would start with an, that they would just be considered very high risk. So they would start with an anabolic agent and go to the bisphosphonate afterwards. But there may be situations where you could start with this in a patient who hasn't necessarily had a fracture yet. Um, a couple notable things. The Forteo is uh, refrigerated, which kind of inconvenient for patients sometimes, whereas the Timlos is only refrigerated before your first dose. Um, but in the Timlos is 80 micrograms once daily. It's still a daily sub-Q injection. Um, dizziness is a very common side effect of these medications, especially in the first four hours of dosing. So a lot of times patients will be instructed to take it at night. But you can imagine why dizziness would be a problem for a patient who has maybe already had a fragility fracture, um, who probably has a walker and is elderly. So um, I think that's a big counseling point. There's also some like nausea that can be associated with them, but um, those are kind of the main side effects to be aware of. Yeah, and the that author of the editorial does, and I'm quoting again, but she said if the the fracture risk is high, then she typically starts with an anabolic medication for one to two years. If the risk is medium, then she uses a bisphosphonate for up to five years, and then stops and monitors for signs of the medication you know wearing off but uh thinking of these possibly which is not what the guideline necessarily reflects i think it's one of her you know bones to pick with the guidelines is they don't necessarily address the fact that if it's a patient with really severe osteoporosis at baseline 
you know, it might be better off to start with that. Yes. You might not get the same results down the road if you start with the bisphosphonate. Yeah, the up-to-date authors kind of agree with her, maybe not in as strong a terms, but they, they kind of give, in very high-risk patients, they kind of give all the options. They're like, you can start a bisphosphonate, but we're also comfortable with you starting an anabolic agent. Um, she seems to be pretty pro-anabolic if it's, if it's very high-risk. And, and she does mention for male patients as well. Yeah. Because uh, in the guidelines, they don't really address that, although Timulus, it was approved for... Um, male patients as well now. Yes, not super recent. I mean, or... Um, fairly recently. Fairly recently. It wasn't a long time ago. Uh, but yeah, she did say that there's plenty of data supporting their use in, in men, and she was a little disappointed that they didn't really go into that. As far as which one to choose between those two, I mean, there's not much of a difference. We do have... Forte is a lot older. Obviously, it's already gone generic. Timlos, I think, was like 2018 or 2019. So we have more, you know, safety data, I suppose, just post-market with um, Forte. So you might feel a little more comfortable with that. But effectively, they're they're like the same. Yeah. There's another agent um, that Mike mentioned before, Romosozumab, is branded as Avenity. And um, it is kind of unique because it has bone it increases bone formation and also decreases bone resorption it's a monoclonal antibody that binds and inhibits sclerostin kind of referenced that before um not super new but came out in 2019 um and it's approved for um, treatment of osteoporosis uh, specifically in postmenopausal women who are at high risk for fracture i don't think it's used that much um primarily because it has a um box warning for increased risk for cardiovascular events um, and um, um, stroke and that sort of thing. So anyone who has a history of that would not be able to use this. Anyone who's at high risk for that, you wouldn't want to use this. And anyone who's not, it's still going to increase their risk. So um, kind of concerning in that sense when you have some other options. Um, It's also only to be used for one year. And then you would want to move to another anti-resorptive agent. Um, but I have seen it prescribed um, a little bit, primarily because its dosing is just once weekly. I need to verify that. It's either once weekly or once monthly. Yeah, I got it right here. Um, but it's not once daily, whereas the the other anabolic ones are. And um, so some clinicians will offer that. Um, I personally just, you know, I feel like the, the risks are just high, a little bit higher than the other two, in my opinion. Oh, it's monthly. Once monthly. Once yeah, monthly. for one year. For one year. Administered as a two single use, 105 milligrams per 1.17 ml pre-filled syringe. Yep, one after the other. And and um, they it is recommended to correct any hypocalcemia before administering the medication. I don't know if you had said that. Um, I one, think it also is supposed to be administered by a healthcare provider as well, yeah. which is not ideal. And the, the other thing is with a lot of these, I mean, really all these medications, patients should still, and we mentioned this briefly earlier, but patients should be on adequate calcium and vitamin D supplementation. Yeah. Prolia specifically mentions in the label mm-hmm. that you have to be on vitamin D and calcium supplementation. Yeah. So uh, anything else with with the new guidelines or anything else that we need to go over? Because I think we're almost out of time. I think we hit it. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to have to rush through those um Last few, I thought we were good, but uh, we, we did good. Yeah. We did good. If we do say so ourselves. Yeah. I, uh, I'll post a link to the Medscape article. That's if, For those of you who want like a deep dive, there was a, um, an, a Medscape article um, that basically walks through and gives a really good overview of osteoporosis. It's quite long, um, but they go through the differential diagnosis. They go through the various lab, you know, testing that you can do for like uh, additional, you know, um, 
additional workup to get through that uh, differential diagnosis portion um, and then go a little bit uh, deeper into the meds and things like that. So I'll post a link to that for any of you who are interested. It's, it's free to get access to. And, uh, yeah, I think we're about out of time. So I will say, for those of you, again, who are freece.com members, make sure that uh, you go to their website and take the post-activity test and get your one-hour credit. And for those of you who are not, definitely go check out the website, see what you think. Um, I I think uh, I used them personally even before I was uh, partnered with them to to do these type of continuing education um, episodes. So I I definitely am a a fan um, for a while now. I've been using them since I graduated. So very convenient platform. So thanks to them for continuing to partner with us for uh, basically two years now. It's been been a good time. And for those of you who like more like structure, uh, like lecture style, not episodes, but lecture style content instead of us kind of getting off on our tangents and whatnot, which I feel like we did fairly well today. I think we were pretty on on task. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We only did it a couple times, but uh, including right there. But uh, um, we have our Patreon, which is basically like PowerPoint slides and, and recorded lectures on various disease states. It's a little bit more structured and, you know, boring if you will but uh you can download the the lecture video and the powerpoint slide set and it's like three dollars a month so patreon.com slash core consult rx a whole bunch of different lectures on there thousands of powerpoint slides so check that out um the you know really appreciate the support that you guys give us on there and uh, if you have any questions for Cole or myself, then uh, we will have emails in the show notes, uh, phone numbers in the show notes, and um, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms as well. And until next time, you guys have a great one. We'll see you around. Have a good night.